Amen. You might want to turn me down because I tend to get excited when I preach. I want to save people's ears. There we go. Hey, can I? Uh, can we do a, a quick recap, just like a two-minute recap about prophecy? Is that all right? We really want to get this because I believe the Lord is uh, releasing in this season uh, true, ordained, God-given prophets to his churches. And there's a new level of maturity that he is calling us up in with how we prophesy, specifically how we prophesy corporately. I have a, a slide. I just want to break this down real quick. I've shown this before. I have a slide. It should be coming up. There it is. So when we receive revelation from the Lord, right, and it's prophetic, it really falls into two categories. We have forthtelling, which is something that's going on currently. Words of knowledge fall into this category. Or making some, a sense of something that has happened in the past. Is this blocking everything? It's not that important. You can just leave that mark. Yeah, it's, it's okay. I appreciate it. And then we have foretelling, which is something that is, this is going to happen. It's specific. It's pointed. Uh, this is how we need to respond to what God is doing. That's uh, foretelling oversight. So we kind of have these categories, and we're going to keep uh, going through these things. Um, but I, I want you to think as prophetic words, because prophecy is subject to the prophet. Amen. That's what the word teaches us. I want you to be thinking through these things. Uh, this morning we had two words. Uh, I wouldn't put them in the prophetic category. I would say two words of exhortation that came forward. This is what we're trying to mature in. To let, let the Lord speak to us in a more clear way. And God, who is this for specifically? What are you doing right now? If you notice as we were going through the service today, we were exalting God and there was the, the, this, this theme that the Spirit was leading into. And both of the words took us away from that just a little bit. But it's okay. We are growing. Everyone says we're growing. Everyone say we're maturing. Everyone says we love each other. And we're going to move forward faithfully. Amen? Cool. So now we're going to talk about Nehemiah chapter 9. You all ready? Open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 9. What does your heading say over chapter 9? The people of Israel confess their sin. Confession. What do you think of when you hear the word confession? A priest in a booth. When someone says confession, and when we're talking about confession today, does that make you feel uptight? Let's pray. God, I pray, Lord, that you would show us the fullness of what confession is. God, that it would lead us to a beautiful and a wonderful place with you, God. Lord, would you teach us how to rightly see and act out confession, God. Change our perspective. Solidify what we know to be true. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Nehemiah 9. We're going to start in verse 1. This is a doozy. This is a long one, but we're going to get through it. We're going to do it together. And we're going to do it smiling because we don't have to feel condemned over anything. All right? It says, Now on the 24th day of the month, if you are reading the NLT, it says October 31st. So there's your Halloween celebration, everyone. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel, Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners 
and stood and confessed their sin and the iniquities of their father. And they stood up in the place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. A Hebrew day was only 12 hours. So for three hours, they're all standing there reading the word of God. It says for another quarter of the day, three hours, they made confession and worship. Do you see how the word confession has been uh, stated twice? Okay, well, we're going to come back to that. It says, uh, to the Lord their God, on the stairs of the Levites stood, and it goes through all the priests. And in verse 5, it says, they stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. So this is what's going on. Last week we talked about they were celebrating a feast, and it was the Feast of Booths. So what they were doing is they all built these temporary dwellings. And what Pastor Slaughter was teaching us last week, as they were building these dwellings, living in these temporary dwellings, it was all designed to reinstate and to bring up an eternal mindset. So that eternity would be on their mind. So when they looked around at what was in front of them, they could remember and say, this is only temporary. What I'm going through right now, no matter how good it is, no matter how bad it is, it is only temporary. They had an eternal perspective that was starting to be built throughout the celebration of this feast inside of them. And then they came to day eight. The day of new beginnings. And see, something happens in us when we put on an eternal perspective that we want to walk out the newness, the new freedom we feel with that on. And do you see how they responded? It says they assembled together, they came together in unity, and they were fasting, they were wearing sackcloth, and they had dirt on their heads. Dirt on, the head, on their heads comes from this uh, place in Joshua where we see Joshua come before the glory of the Lord. And his only response is to get down and put his face into the dirt. Through all this, what they're trying to communicate is the food of this world. This is what an eternal mindset does for us. The food of this world will never satisfy me. I'm fasting. It's to remind myself that the food of this world, no matter how much I eat of it, will never truly satisfy me. They put on sackcloth to say, the comfort of this world, the way people perceive me and see me, will also never satisfy me. They get to the ground, they put their forehead against the earth, they have earth and dirt on their forehead saying, not only is the food of this world or the comfort of this world or how I'm perceived never going to satisfy me, but a position will never satisfy me, so I need to make myself low. This is what I believe is being talked about in 1 John 2, 15 through 17 that says, do not love the world or the things in the world. For anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are not from the Father but are from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's what they're saying. This is what an eternal perspective does for us. You start, you start having a, a, new, a new lens to see things through. That the houses, the material, the things that satisfy our flesh no longer mean what they used to. Because we have clarity seeing that no matter how much I obtain, this is never going to satisfy my deepest desire. That no matter how much I rise up, no matter how much authority or position or leadership I have, that is never going to satisfy my inmost need for God to be the leader in my life. 
This is what happened. This was the outcome of celebrating the Feast of Booths. And they all assembled together in this mindset. And did you see where it says that they separated themselves from everything foreign? We see in Ezra, we see a picture of this, that they separated themselves uh, from, from their marriages with people who didn't love God. This is talking about separating yourself, anything foreign from the house of God. So whether that's a marriage that happened in Nehemiah or it was a, a, a sinful pattern in their life or a cheesy Japanese martial art foreign movie, they were being separated from anything that was foreign to the house of God. We then saw what it said is, is that they began to read the word of God for three hours straight. Altogether, it says that the priests were on the stairs. Did you catch that part? These are like the first, uh, we see like a choir riser. That, that they're standing on these risers because this is where they would stand from this platform. And they were all standing there in, in unity and together as the word of God was being proclaimed. They had an eternal perspective. They were separated. Then they began to confess their sin. That's before reading the word. See, when we come to a place where we begin to confess our sin to the Lord, it starts tilling up our heart and our desire to read the word of God. That is the plank that can exist with inside of our eye that we, we, it causes us to not see clearly. It says, then they read the word of God, and then it's confession part two. Remember, we saw confession twice. So they confess their sin, they read the word of God, and that actually causes them to confess again. And we're going to break it down why, why this happens twice. <coughs> it then says that they worship the Lord. Okay, do you have the pattern down? Eternal perspective, separation of anything foreign, confession of sin, reading the word, confession again, and worship. It would be very important for us to say, God, how can I live this out during the week before I get together in unity with my brothers and sisters on Sunday? Sometimes we can wonder, why does worship fall flat? Have you ever been here and you're like, yeah, it just, it seems like we didn't get to where the Lord was desiring to take us. I want to challenge everyone here very specifically before next week to walk out this pattern. To intentionally renew your mind so you have an eternal perspective put on that you would separate yourself from anything this world has to offer, that you would confess your sin to God, that you would be in the word for at least three hours this week, that you would confess again and worship even before you come together. And I guarantee if that's what you're experiencing during the week, that's what we'll all experience together in this place. So you see this pattern uh, take place, and you have the word confession. It came up twice. This is the Hebrew word yada, not to be confused with the word yada or yade, which means to know, you know, yada, yada, yada. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> That's really where it comes from. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Okay. The Hebrew word confessed in this passage is yada. And it has a little bit of a different connotation. It means two things. Uh, the first thing it means in the lesser of how we see it used, it means to cast down or to cast out. Like throwing an arrow out, throwing stones away. To cast out. But almost five times more than that, it's used to communicate praise, exaltation, elevation, to, to describe what is true. So think about this for a second. So it wasn't just acknowledging their sin that they were doing. They were yada. They saw their sin and they cast it away. 
Then they read the word of God and they confessed again, but it wasn't to, con to, to, to push anything away. It was to proclaim what is true. It's like this, Ian, I have two cans right here. Can you bring those up real quick for me, buddy? Cans of beans. Thanks, buddy. Everyone, you are not a human unless you have an unmarked can of beans in your pantry. Confession part one. This is what we're talking about. What is full confession? Okay? We're still on the confession thing. Confession part one. I see the sin. I see the can of sin that is in my pantry. Sin beans. Sin beans and a can of truth. And see, sometimes when we think about confession, we think, yep, yeah, see, there's the can of beans. It's there. See, confess, done. Yada is removing it and replacing it with something that is bigger and if, with what is true. You can make a chili out of that. Do you see how it's not just confessing sin, but it's replacing it and confessing what is true? It's not just confessing what you did wrong, but it's confessing what is right. That is what a full confession is. See, I believe this is something that our church fathers actually could, could conceive of. When, when the, the Protestant church separated uh, from the Catholic church, we saw all these confessions coming forward. It wasn't like, well, this is what we did wrong, and we did this wrong, and we did this wrong. No. We had confessions. The 1632 Dordrecht Confession, where these Anabaptists came together and said, no, this is what we're standing for. This is what we are confessing to be true about our God. Yes, this is where we got it wrong, but this is what we're replacing it with, because this is what is right. We see that throughout our history, the Westminster Confession in 1647. We see the Second London Baptist Confession in 1689. These confessions were rising up. This is what is true. This is what I stand on. Is this reshaping what you think confession is a little bit? It's not just acknowledging our sin. It's casting down our sin and replacing it with truth. This is a picture when we talk about repentance, right? The Greek word metanoia. It's literally this change of mind. Yeah, I used to think this way about it, but that's bad. So now I think this way about it because this is what is true. Casting it down and elevating with praise what is true. That is their full confession. What we're going to do we're going to talk about uh, this one concept. This is the whole point of today. Is that full confession, not half confession, not just identifying sin, not just proclaiming what is true, the casting down and the replacing. Full confession revives personal commitment. If you are here and your personal commitment to the Lord has been diminishing, the righteousness that you once stood for, the zeal you once had is diminishing, I'm telling you, full confession is what is going to revive your personal commitment to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here, you feel fully committed. You feel fully committed. You are on fire for the Lord. This is how we continue to stoke the fire of personal commitment in our life. Through full confession.
what we're going to do throughout the rest of Nehemiah 9. We're going to read the text. We're going to go through it pretty quickly. But I want to point out exactly what is confessed. In the Septuagint, it says that Ezra uh, said these things. We don't have any other um, uh, specific people in this prayer. This is a prayer we're going to read uh, beside him. But this is something that is being confessed to God, a full confession to God. Let's start. We're going to read verses 6 through 8. Here's the first thing. I want you to look for this in the text. The first confession is we are preserved through covenant. He prays, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heavens worship you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Here's the first thing that gets confessed in the prayer. God, you have preserved us through your covenant. Do you see how he begins to declare what God has done? He says two things. He says, God, you preserve what you create. This is what is true, God. No matter what we just went through in Babylon, how we've been destroyed and beaten and murdered, and now we're coming back to rebuild something, the truth is, God, you always preserve what you create. And the way, God, you do that is you do it through your covenant. Before I knew hydrangeas were my wife's favorite flower, I used to buy her roses. That's it, but <laughs> you know how when you're like, you have, uh, you give someone roses and maybe it's young puppy love and they want to keep them forever. So they hang them upside down. They let them dry. They spray them with either some shellac. I don't know what it's actually called. <laughs> Or they dip them in wax to try to preserve, you know, this, this symbol of love in a much, 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 much greater way. The Lord used his covenant to preserve his people. He talks about the Abrahamic covenant. I want to bring up that slide one more time. We've been talking through this a whole bunch. Why didn't he say the, 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 the Adamic covenant or the Noahic covenant or the Davidic covenant? Or the, or the, why didn't he say any of those? Why did he just say? Because the Abrahamic covenant was what everything was built on. He's saying you can trust the foundation of the covenant, that your foundation is strong. God, we trust the foundation. That's what Ezra is declaring right now. From the beginning, God... From the beginning, you have preserved us, God. That's what he's declaring. No matter what our circumstance says, from the beginning, you have preserved us. I want to ask all of you who have stepped out under the new covenant that you've given your life, that your entire life, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior, that you, you cast aside your sin and you made him the Lord of your life under that new covenant. Have you seen how God has preserved you time and time and time again. Listen, this is our confession. How many people here, now I'm not talking in a spiritual sense, how many people in here have stories of this should have physically killed me? I should be dead right now. I should be laying six feet underground right now, but I am alive because the King of Kings preserves what he creates. This is how he starts. He said, God, you preserve through covenant. 
Confession one. Confession two. We're going to look at verse 9 through 15. He says, God, we have been delivered from affliction. I'm not only going to confess that you have preserved us, but you have delivered us. You haven't left us in our state. You brought us somewhere else. Look for this as we read 9 through 15. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them. So that when they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. He says, God, not only is it true that you've preserved me, but you have delivered me from the affliction that I have been facing. This is what Ezra is bringing light to. One of the best things about being a dad, especially of three boys, I don't know if this is true for girls as well, but my three boys get stuck in so many random places. <laughs> Finn will get his legs stuck in the crib. Louie will get stuck behind a bookcase somehow. Nicholas will get stuck in a tree. There's, they get stuck. And half of my job as a dad is to run as their deliverer. Do you see, Ezra is pointing a picture of God being the father who delivers. That's what he's saying. Hey, God, when we were stuck here, this is how you delivered. When we were stuck here, this is how you delivered. When we were stuck in this place, this is how you delivered. There was no one else but the good father who could unstick us. He says, when there was no way out, this is everything boiled down. He said, when there was no way out, you made a way. When there was no one else, you made a name. When there was no guide, you gave a pillar. When there was no direction, you gave commands. When there was no leader, you gave Moses. When there was no provision, you gave food. And when there was no home, you gave land. That is how the good Father moves, and I'm telling you, if you are here this morning and you feel stuck, and that you are surrounded by affliction, physical affliction, spiritual affliction, whatever it is, our good Father wants to deliver you from affliction. That is our confession, that we have a good Father, and when no one else will, when no one else steps up to the plate, our Father will always step up. It is in his character. Here's the second thing. In Romans 8.15, I want to read this. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by who we cry, Abba, Father. He delivered us from slavery so that we could cry out, Abba, Father. That is the picture of what Ezra is talking about right here as he's proclaiming and confessing who God is. Confession three. Our God is so good that he would even sustain us after defiance. He said, God, not, not only have you done all these things, and now he starts to confess his sin. He starts to show his sin. He casts down the sin in his prayer, and he puts truth where his sin was. Watch how he does this. Verse 16 through 21. But they and our fathers act presumptuously. Say defiant. And stiffen their neck. Say defiant. And did not obey. Say defiant. 
your commandments. They refused to obey. Say it. And were not mindful. Say it. Of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Wait, God, you, you rescued them as a good father, and they were defiant to you time and time again. They did all these things. How could you, how could you provide for someone who's been so defiant? See, there's a religious lie is that when I fail, I need to sustain myself. That's not who our God is. Because look what it says next. It says, but you are a God ready to forgive. Maybe your translation says this, but you are a God of forgiveness. This is, this is a doorway right here. This phrase is a doorway. How do we get from being defiant in so many ways to, to receiving the provision that the Lord wants to give us? The doorway is called forgiveness. This is what it says about God. And then I want to try to explain what's being said. He says, but you are re ready, God. You are a God ready to forgive. Gracious. Receive this right now. Please receive this. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. He's explaining it like this. A flame gives light. Light is intrinsic to a flame's nature. If a flame doesn't give light, it's, it's not a flame. It's part of it. It, can't, it cannot be divided from those things. He's saying, God, what is true about you is that forgiveness, graciousness, merciful, being merciful, being slow to anger and abounding in love. It's not something you do, but it is who you are. That God, you are not God without these things because they are a part, they are intrinsic to your very nature. And see, as they, they start to declare this truth, look at how it begins to shift. Verse 18 even when they made it for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them the way did not depart from them by night, nor did the pillar of fire by night to light them for the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their, for, for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. The reason why this happened is because they stepped through the doorway, the entryway of God's greatness, his character, and his forgiveness. They receive these things because God, remember, what he creates, he will preserve. And he uses a covenant. And his forgiveness abounds. And it says that they sustained them and they lacked nothing. It's broken down in a few ways. We see that he, he spiritually sustained them. When it talks about uh, uh, the, the cloud and the pillar of fire, that this is a picture of the Holy Spirit. 
This is the spiritual sustenance. This is uh, what it's talking about in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, where it says uh, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It has these three baptisms pictured that, that he sustained them spiritually throughout all of this. Not only did that, but he, he, he sustained their basic needs, that he gave them food, he gave them water, that he sustained them and he gave them strength. And they lacked nothing. Sustained even after defiance. Do you have a confession that you need to make about a defiant place in your life? Where you say, God, just like your people did back here and in this word, I can see where I've been defiant time and time after again, even when you've delivered me from affliction. And then I've been defiant. God, this is what is true. That you are a forgiving God. That you are a merciful God. And I'm stepping into the fullness of that because we have a covenant together. That you are the one who's going to provide for everything I need. That I don't have to make myself pay the penalty by trying to be strong enough or spiritual enough or have enough material things to make up for what I can't do. God is the one who provides. And with him, we lack nothing. We lack nothing. That was his confession. Confession four. We see increase preceding rebellion. We see increase was given, although I believe God knew the people of Israel were going to rebel again. Increase was still given. Wrap your mind around that. In verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms, increase, and people and allotted to them every corner, increase. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Ah, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children, increase, as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand with their king and the people of the land that they might do with them as they would. And you captured fortified cities in a rich land, increase, and took possession of full houses, or houses full, increase, of all good things. Cisterns already hewn. Look at this abundance they have. Vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Everybody say, increase. They're experiencing increase. Increase. Look, everything. Everything that God promised is happening. We're seeing it. We're experiencing it. We're not slaves. We're living in this free land. Look at all the fruit trees that are around us. See, Ezra's bringing something uh, to, to attention that is very important. It is a lie that sometimes we will tell ourselves that when I have a, an abundance, then I will be faithful. We're going to see that turn. God, when I have this, when I have an abundance of leadership, when I have an abundance of resources, then I will be faithful. He's saying, guys, remember when we believe this. Remember when we preach this. We know that this isn't true. Look at what they did. They have all this, everything they could have hoped or imagined, the fulfillment of a promise. The lie is that more provision or a fulfilled promise would change behavior. It never does. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you. They cast their law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who you had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in, the t in that time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors 
who saved them from the hand of their enemies. It's talking about the judges there. Do you see where he brings up they cast it behind their backs? Ian, I need help one more time. Can I have those tennis balls, buddy? Thank you so much. You can just set them right here. Do you see what it says? They cast behind their backs. They experienced all this increase, all this abundance. They had the commands of God. This was the first thing to go. I have this in this, but they began to rebel, it says. And the first thing to go in rebellion, this is what is written. This is what I know to be true. These are the commands. This is what God says. They cast it behind their backs. Disregard. I want you to imagine for those of you who proposed to your, your girlfriend to make her fiance, to make her wife, and she's here with you. Imagine she takes that ring and casts it behind her back. You'd be like, yeah, I was just joking anyway. I'll go, fine. So. All right, do you see the big deal that the marriage ceremony that happened on Mount Sinai, where God proposed to his people and gave them commands as a beautiful gift, that they took the very wedding ring of God and they threw it behind their back? Not only that, but God in his commands, uh, God's people, his prophets, who he loved dearly and gave them they took these people and they cast them behind their back then God was gracious enough with the people that should have been wiped out by any of our religious standards and he kept giving them warnings Warning after warning, don't do this. This is not who I am. Come back, return to me. Don't rebel any longer. Look at the increase. And the word says that they cast it behind their back. Maybe a confession that needs to be made in your life is that God has been so good to you. That he's given you increase after increase after increase after increase. And isn't it funny that when these big things happen, when uh, raises happen or people get jobs, breakthrough, people get houses, something immediately comes where they have a chance to cast the commands behind their back. So an opportunity comes where they have the chance to cast God's people behind their back. Where an opportunity comes where they have a chance to cast the warnings behind their back. God is so faithful to us. Increase preceding rebellion. Here's the next one. God is so good that he did this. Warning before discipline. Warning. We talked about this. Something that they cast behind their back before. I want you to catch God's goodness and his mercy, his patience and his long suffering in this prayer. Go to verse 30. He said many years, what does that communicate as he's praying? That God is patient and long-suffering. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit and through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the land. God, you gave us warnings for all you golfers who yell, For... Do you know where that came from? When people were golfing, they used to say that the word was for caddy. You'd say, for caddy. And it means, hey, a golf ball is coming, caddy, because they'd have caddies down by the green to spot the ball. That's where it came from. It was a warning. It was a shout saying, hey, something's coming. 
Something is coming. Pay attention. I told you this was, was going to come. This is the reason why I'm playing this game of golf. Remember, you're my caddy. You signed up for this. And now I'm warning you that it's coming out of my graciousness and my love for you. Although you should expect this to come because of the nature of the job and the description in which you've signed up for, I'm still going to warn you because I love you and I care about you. That's how I talk to all my golf caddies. <laughs> My many golf caddies. <laughs> it's much easier just to buy new golf balls when you hit them into the water. So you got to warn them before you discipline them. As he's praying this, he's saying, God, you warned us. Look how good you are. Here's the truth. God, I, here's the truth. I rebelled, sin, cast it down. But you warned us. You warned us. But you are still good. Here's the last thing. I'm going to, before we put up the slide, I'm going to read it first. He's saying, all this is true. Now, as who I believe to be Ezra or another priest is coming to close his prayer, you, you could see the progression throughout his prayer. It started with Abraham, and it came uh, through what happened and their deliverance through the Red Sea into the Promised Land through Judges. Now he's bringing it back to where he is today. Verse 31, he says, Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until now. He's saying, we're talking about now. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully as we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And it's kind of like anticlimactic at the end. But I think it's so beautiful because it's raw and real. Here's the last confession that's made. God, you've shown me endless mercy, grace, greatness, might, awesomeness, kept promises, steadfast love, righteousness, faithfulness, and goodness the entire way. He's saying, God, I'm a slave right now. We're still slaves. But this is what is true. That the entire way that your mercy has been endless. The entire way, God, your grace has been endless to me. The entire way, this is my confession, that your greatness and your might has been endless to me. That your steadfast love has been endless to me. That your righteousness has been endless to me. The entire way. You see the full confessions that are made in this prayer. This is how it ends. Look at verse 38. He said, because of all of this, just got done confessing. Because of all of this, we, now it's not God, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. God, because of all of this that I've just gone through, all of this that I'm bringing to mind, all of this that I'm confessing, this full confession is reviving a personal commitment. God, this is what we are committed of. I now can see clearly because I've separated myself and I've confessed my sin and I've been in your word and I've replaced it with what is true. I see this clearly and that drives in us a desire for personal commitment because full, full 
Everybody said, confession revives personal relationship. Well, we're going to have a, a pretty awesome week next week. Uh, Lord willing, uh, our good friend, Deacon Anthony Acevedo, is going to be teaching on uh, Nehemiah 10. And, and these, these two things are, are combined a little bit. But this is what I, I want us to do right now. If Austin and Hannah, are you in here? Could you hand off your lovely little baby? And would you just play and, and sing over us for a little bit? Um, I want to ask you, what is your confession? What is your testimony of confession? I want everyone right now to get with your family or people around you. And I just want you to ask the Lord, God, would you reveal to me the fullness of my confession to you? And Austin and Hannah are going to play for us. We have communion up here at the front. If I can have two guys, just bring them down in front of the stage right here. And this is what I want to challenge everyone to do this week. In the same way Ezra wrote out, this is my confession. Here's what had to be cast down and removed, and this is what we've replaced it with. God, this is what has been true of our family. I want you as a family to write out your confession this week. We're going to call ours the Massey Confession 2018, 2019. What is your confession? How have you seen the Lord do all these things for you? I, I, I pray and I hope that you'll take this serious. I hope that next week as we all stand together, we'll have pieces of paper in our hand and we can hold up our confessions of how we have turned away from what is sin and have we fully embraced who God is and what he has done and we would stand with a revived personal commitment because of the full confession that is in our hand. That is my prayer. So right now, why don't you guys, you can just pray. Uh, get with the people around you. If you're new here, don't feel awkward. We do this as a family. Just begin to pray out for a little bit and then as you feel led, you can come up and take communion, amen.